Read with me Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul, the author of Romans, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit in verse 15, just before our reading this morning, says that he's eager to preach the gospel to the church that's in Rome. We've been reflecting on that over the last few weeks. Why is he eager? Well, at the beginning of our passage this morning, it says he's eager because he's not ashamed of the gospel, but rather he's, he's actually confident. He's so confident that he's eager to preach the gospel. He's confident that the gospel word proclaimed to the church in Rome will save the church. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The church. Now, we've reflected on the, that past few weeks as well. I mean, you would think if he's going to show up in Rome, he would be eager to preach the gospel to those who have not believed, that they would be gathered in. And this is surely the case. This is what he always does when he goes from place to place. But it says specifically in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, right? He's eager to preach the gospel to the church, to those who believe will be saved by the gospel that Paul proclaims. That means if this is true of Rome, surely this is true of us. You and I who believe need this gospel because it's by this gospel that we will be saved because the gospel works. It's sure for everyone who believes. The gospel works to bless us and to keep us. It works for the whole of the church, Jew and Gentile, we read last week, read again this morning. So we've seen Paul, he's eager. He has an eager confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ, an eager confidence that that produces an eagerness to proclaim that gospel. We've seen that this confidence is in the reality that the gospel actually works. The gospel is God's power for salvation. It's powerful and effective to save. Now, this week, here's what we get to see. We get to see how it works. We get to see not just an eager expectation that it does work. We get to see the inner workings of how it works, all the more to buoy our confidence. So let's pray. Let's pray to the God of this gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we have good news to share, good news to preach, good news to receive, good news to place our faith in from beginning to end and all the way through that we would be kept by this grace. Lord, I pray that you would do that today. We know and we are confident that it is right to be eager to preach the gospel and to hear the gospel preached. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do what you do by this good news, that you would save. You would save a church to yourself. You would save a people to yourself. That you would bring about a new faith and you would keep a faith to its end, Lord, by this one gospel of Jesus Christ, our 
Lord. We pray that you would do that miraculous power of God power in our midst this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we are actually going to wrap up the beginning of our sermon series in this book of Romans. Uh, We're going to be walking through Romans each fall. This time we made it 10 weeks in, and we made it all the way to chapter or verse 17 of the first chapter. So we might be at this for a few falls in a row, Uh, and I am confident that it will be beneficial to the church. But here we are in this most precious of verses. Romans 1, 16 and 17, and particularly 17, is one of the most powerful images that we have of the grace of God at work, a glimpse into the inner workings of the gospel. Now, one of the things that you'll notice as we spend time in Romans is Romans is all about context. Over and over again, it's all about context. It's not a gathering of sayings. It's not like Proverbs where you could sort of grab a couple of the Proverbs out and reflect on them in your day. But really, Romans makes sense together. It interprets itself. And so it's as though, as Paul's writing these words, it's like he has in his mind the whole book. And I think he does. I think he's thinking about the whole book as he says each word, and so, so we ought to think about the whole book as we read each word. As he writes these sentences, it's, it's really true of our passage this morning. When, when he writes verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed, he's already thinking about the next sentence. What's he say in the next sentence? Well, in verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So in our passage today, we have the righteousness of God, and in our passage in the next verse, it says we have the wrath of God revealed. And so context is going to help us to understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans, the wrath of God revealed. Look at the whole verse, verse 18. For The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there you have it, right? You have this contextual uh, juxtaposition of, of the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of men. And you have the wrath of God coming down upon the unrighteousness of men, but you have the salvation of God in the context of the righteousness of God. Do you see? Now, see, at least those things are there. They're to be compared, but what do they mean? Well, the wrath of God is coming. It has been revealed and is coming. We know right now, we know many trials and sufferings of of many kinds. We know this. We know something of the wrath of God upon sin because we know something of momentary afflictions entering into this world on account of sin. Now, this is really important. It is not as though, and Jesus blows up this idea real quick, it's not as though any particular sickness is always, uh, or any trial that a person goes through is always necessarily associated with any one particular sin. If you are going through a a difficult time, perhaps you develop a cough 
on a Saturday, or you stub your toe in the morning. That doesn't necessarily mean that you sinned on Friday, all right? Just because you are suffering a general reality of God's wrath on Saturday morning, that doesn't mean it's wrath upon any particular sin of yours, but it does remind us that sin and its consequence, death, suffering, are a reality in this world. And so a cough is a gift. A stubbing your toe in the morning is a gift because it reminds you of a very real truth. There is the wrath of God that has been revealed against our unrighteousness, our ungodliness. There is more than sufferings in this life, though, that remains. Yes, God's wrath has been revealed, but there is a final judgment. The wrath of God is revealed as evidenced by our sufferings, but there is a judgment that is coming, and we do well to pay attention to that stub toe in the morning or whatever far deeper trial you may be in because it's a reminder not only that sin has entered the world and God's wrath is upon ungodliness, but there is a final judgment yet to be revealed. Verse 17 says, salvation for everyone who believes. That's true. It's good news. It's rightly called gospel. But we must also know and believe that there is wrath and judgment for everyone who has sinned. There is no salvation unless there is a reality to be saved from, you see. God's wrath is revealed in verse 18, and there is a righteous judgment. I would go over to, again, Romans needs to be understood in context of itself. In Romans chapter 3, we're going to look at it a good bit this morning. Romans 3 verse 10 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. And yet God's wrath has been revealed against ungodliness. What's that mean? if there are none who are righteous. Well, I know salvation is for those who believe, but I know that God's wrath is for everyone. Everyone. This is an issue. This is a problem. I thought we were here to hear the gospel. I thought we were going to hear good news, and you're telling me that really what you ought to do is despair. You ought to despair because There is God's righteous wrath being revealed against all ungodliness, and the reality is there is no one who is righteous. And so that ought to produce despair in the heart of mankind. The wrath of God is revealed on account of sin that all of us have participated in. Yes, sin entered on account of our first parents, Adam and Eve, but we have shown ourselves to be justly counted their children. Yeah, I'm just like Papa. I'm just like Mama, Adam, and Eve. In my participation in sin and rebellion. Yeah, it's true. And so God is just to judge. His wrath is a righteous wrath, and no one will escape on their own. This is what we ought to sit in For a moment, we ought to know this. That's the application point of verse 18 and Romans 3.10 put next to each other. It is to cause us to ask, is there anyone who can escape judgment when the wrath of God is revealed? 
I'll say it again. This is one of the most important questions you can ask about the gospel is to first ask, is there anyone, anyone at all, that can escape judgment when the wrath of God is revealed? Any way, any way at all. It's the place that we come to in our celebration service, right before the scripture is read. We, we've, we've gone through a, a song that celebrates the holiness of our God, and then we, we sing a song that puts us uh, in, in, in a place of a need for redemption. And so we confess our sin. We admit, I am a fallen sinner in the face of this holy God. I need grace. And that's why we have a scripture reading. Because we open up the word and then we spend time in reflection on that word to say, is there any good news for a people who have spent time in a prayer of confession at all? And, and man, I hope you're not confessing all your righteous deeds right? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. The prayer of confession leaves us in a place of despair unless there's some news, some mercy, some love, some kindness, some salvation that is to be found in our God. And so we are right to ask it one more time. Is there anyone or any way that I can escape judgment when the wrath of God is revealed? Essentially, the question is this, how will we live? How will we live? This isn't the first time this question has been asked. At the end of verse 17, Paul invites us to think about this question. At the end of verse 17, we're we're faced with the question, how might we live in the face of God's wrath revealed? And verse 17 says, the righteous will live how? How shall we live? The righteous shall live by faith. Now, let's go back to the context of Paul's quote, the the righteous shall live by faith. It is a quotation of an Old Testament passage, the prophet Habakkuk. We spent time in that prophet just about a year ago. In Habakkuk, there's a scenario that's going on. The the prophet Habakkuk has, has cried out to God against all the injustice that he sees around him in Jerusalem and Israel. As he, as he looks around, he says, God, what, aren't you going to do something about all of the sin and ungodliness among the people who are called by your name? Is there anything at all that you're going to do? And here's God's answer, and it shocks, shocks Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 1.6, and then I'm also going to read verse 9, he says this, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, let's be real clear. The Chaldeans are a violent, murderous army of evildoers. And yet it says, I, the Lord, is raising up this army, the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, he says, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. Here's what the Lord is doing. He's announcing, I agree, Habakkuk. I see what you see. You you were concerned that I didn't see the ungodliness of this people in Jerusalem. I do see. And my wrath has been revealed against all ungodliness. That's essentially God's response. 
The Lord has announced judgment on the land and on its people. When the horse and its rider come sweeping down on the city, it is clear that there are none who are not going to be swept away. There's no one who's going to escape. I hope you have it in your head. Can you see the horse and its rider? Read Habakkuk. You can almost see the spit coming out of the horse's mouth as it gallops down the mountain to destroy a city in which there is wickedness. And Habakkuk understands this. He understands that there is a judgment coming. God is serious. He's not just offering some metaphor of, of a general displeasure. He's describing his wrath. And so Habakkuk says in 1.12, he responds, Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. He knows God is holy. He knows he is great. And he's asking this question, and I think it's a, it's a, a bit of a, a, I don't know if the word cynical reply is right, but it's, a, it's a really a question. We shall not die. You're holy, but are you really going to wipe us all out with your wrath? Is there any way, somehow, some way, will there, is there anyone who can survive? You see, it's the same question of Romans 1. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them has judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. I agree. Wrath is real, Lord. I can see it. It's coming. Who will live? Is there any way not to be swept away when the horse and its rider come sweeping down upon the city, when God's wrath is revealed in the form of the Chaldean army crashing down on Jerusalem, destruction is eminent. How will anyone be saved out of this judgment? Habakkuk 2, 4. Just a few verses later. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. He's speaking of the Chaldean army and its general. His soul is puffed up, but the righteous shall live by faith. Speaking of the invader, the Chaldean army, it's general. He rides in with pride as destruction goes before him, as he's appointed by the Lord as an instrument of his wrath upon an ungodly people. He rides in, but there are those who will live. How in the world? I mean, this is the great Chaldean army that sweeps captives away like sand. How do you survive the wrath of God. Friends, this is not an intellectual exercise. Do you believe that you are ungodly before the holy God? In our prayer of confession, is it a time to wait for James or Mark to finish up so we can move on? Or is this a time to sit for a moment and admit he's holy? And if his wrath comes down like he promised, there's nothing left. Because his wrath is righteous and it has the full power and authority of a holy God behind it. And Habakkuk knows that. Is there anyone at all who would live? And there's this announcement 
little hint of good news. The righteous will live. But then it tells us how. By their righteousness, of course. I mean, they weren't the ungodly ones. No, it's not what it says. The righteous shall live by faith. There are those who will be counted righteous, though they were among the ungodly. Rightly counted among those upon whom the wrath is coming, they will be counted righteous, not counted among the wicked who are destroyed. What is sin again? This is a definition we offer quite often. The sin of man is rebellion, but not first in our lawlessness, not first in any particular uh, failure to keep some particular command. Our sin is rebellion in our insistence that on my own, I can live. I can live, says Adam and Eve. I know you gave a law, but on my own, I look at the tree and I see it looks sweet and it seems like it would give me some knowledge. So on my own, I'll grab it and I'll eat. And you do the same thing in your sin and so do I. You say, I I know your command. I know the holy and righteous way, but on my own, I have a way that I can live. On my own, I know a way of joy and happiness and pleasure. Sin is man's insistence on my own I can live. It's the claim in the face of righteous judgment that I can save myself. Thank you very much. Sin cries out in two ways. Either that we are righteous. Yes, the army's coming, but the army's coming for the ungodly. I'm righteous in and of myself. So God's judgment surely won't fall on me and many. There's many stories throughout the scripture of those who have sort of built their house on that. God won't destroy Jerusalem. We're the righteous ones. And in comes the sweeping army of of the Chaldeans. Essentially, it's this. I can avoid judgment by my own self-righteousness. And there's a second way that even though God's judgment is coming, I can see it, I, I can create some refuge, some use of technology, some form of, of some army, somehow to mount a defense against God's sweeping judgment. Yes, God comes in wrath, but we can build a city for ourselves and fortify it against God's judgment. Surely Jerusalem could have done this, and they did many times. They call up the military in a defense against a defense for the city against the coming onslaught of the Chaldeans. But you and I do this as well. Make no mistake, you know you do. We do this by pursuing prosperity. We do it by pursuing fame or building up relationships that in some way we can live in this world apart from reference to a holy God. We think we can give ourselves meaning or purpose or satisfaction in this world, without God. And we say, by those things, I may not be self-righteous, but I am self-reliant. I can save myself against impending doom. But what of faith? The passage says, the righteous will live by faith. On my own, faith says, on my own, I will be swept away by the righteous wrath of a holy God. It's true. Faith admits I despair. There is no hope. Only if the Lord would extend his arm not only in judgment, and he's right to do so, 
But if the Lord would extend his arm in mercy, then I might escape the horse and its rider. The Lord who sends the army, if that same Lord, not on account of any righteousness of my own, not on on account of any plan B defense that I have to to fortify my house or my city, but only if the Lord would show some mercy of which I don't even understand or know, only then might I be saved. Our one hope is that when wrath is revealed, so too will be his mercy. Our one hope is that when his wrath is revealed, because it is revealed, he's promised it, just as much as God has promised to show compassion and mercy day after day and morning after morning, he has also promised to make known his wrath. Only if the Lord rescues those who call out to him in repentance is there any hope of rescue. Essentially, our cry goes something like this. Lord, rescue me from your own righteous decree. I agree with everything about you. You're righteous to put me in the way of your wrath. And you would be good, like I know you to be, to show mercy. It's only these that the Lord counts as righteous in the day of his wrath. Only those who don't cry out their righteousness, but cry out for his mercy. Faith is how you are counted righteous and therefore not consumed by judgment. This reality opens up for us a lot of the Psalms. All of a sudden, the Psalms begin to make sense as they are a cry of faith. Lord, don't destroy me according to your steadfast love and mercy. Yes, you've revealed the reality of your wrath, but you've also revealed you are kind and steadfast love and mercy. This is how sinners take refuge in a holy God. Romans 4, 5. Romans 4, 5 says it like this. And to the one who does not work, not, not in self-righteousness and not in self-reliance, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, he doesn't assert, uh, but I tell you what, what if I can make an argument that I've been good enough to survive the Chaldeans? And he says, there's no argument. You know who you are. Lay down your arguments and cry out for mercy. And that faith is counted as righteousness. It's not him who works self-righteousness or self-reliance. It's him who trusts in the Lord for mercy who will be counted righteous on the day of judgment. Thus far, we've considered the wrath of God revealed. What of his righteousness? What does it mean when his righteousness is revealed? I would encourage you, first of all, to make sure that you see it in Romans 1.17. You can see it, right? For in it, what's the it? It's his salvation, or it's his gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What's it mean? How, how does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? Again, context. Romans chapter 3 is so helpful. If you go to Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, we're going to kind of work our way through this this morning. Beginning in verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been revealed. Apart from the law, 
apart from any keeping of the law on our own, uh, apart from any assertion of our self-righteousness, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they bear witness to the reality of the gospel. But it's in the gospel alone, not the law, but the gospel alone, that the righteousness of God is revealed or manifest. Verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you hear it in verse 23? The wrath of God is coming for everyone. And this this is something I think that we forget in in our reflection upon salvation. The wrath of God is rightly aimed at me. I am the unrighteous one. You sinner, the wrath of God is aimed at you for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness, aimed at you and me. And not at one moment does he ever say that it's not coming. Not once. What he says is that when it comes for those who believe, It comes not upon the sinner, but upon the Christ. Look at it again. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Mercy intervenes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The wrath comes, and so does the mercy of the Christ. It's like that moment and a climactic moment in a superhero film when the camera zooms in on a meteor and it's crashing down on the earth and the camera then pans to those who are crouching behind walls in some building as if the walls could save them from the blast of the meteor in this great epic film. And the camera oscillates between the crashing meteor and these people huddling behind a wall in in a fearful self-reliance and then in a flash. The screen goes black. Judgment day has finally come, and it's all over for the citizens of the earth. And the the music begins to play, and the darkness and the blackness, when you know it's all over, the wrath has finally come down. But when the lights come up and the music plays, it's not the earth that lies in ruins. It's some superhero who has flown in the way of the blast and taken the full force of this destruction that did come, aimed at the earth, and he took the full destructive force of what was coming in the place of all those who were doomed, hiding behind their walls and buildings. The climactic moment of judgment does go off, but the judgment ends up falling on someone other than who you would expect. You see, the gospel is not that the wrath of God is not revealed. The gospel is that when judgment comes, it falls on Jesus instead of the sinner. The wrath of God does come. And friends, for those who believe, the wrath of God has come. And it came on the cross, and it fell upon him in your place. God has judged rightly in verse 23 of chapter 3. He's justified freely by grace alone through the redemption that is in Jesus. Do you see how the context works? These two verses in Romans 3 are some of the most important statements I think there are to make about the gospel as it continues 
In verse 25, it sheds a powerful light upon what has really been revealed about the righteousness of God in the gospel. Look at verse 25 with me. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show. He's going to tell us why. Why did Jesus come? What is it that Jesus does? What is the how of the gospel? This was to show God's righteousness. The righteousness of God revealed. Showing God's righteousness. We're talking about the same thing. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. God has long seen sin. And friends, mercy is not new. From the moment our first parents sinned, and God had declared the wages of sin would be death, they would surely die. What happened when they ate? They didn't. (laughs) Now, they began to die. It's true. They began to suffer. They began to to tend the, the soil with pain and with sweat. But the fullness of death was not filled up for them. Why? Divine forbearance, mercy. Mercy has been revealed for a long, long time. Every time we take a breath and we endure and death doesn't come, wrath is not fully revealed, mercy is present. Verse 26, it was to show, manifest, reveal his righteousness at the present time, at the moment of the performance of the gospel by the Christ, so that he might be, hear this, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, there is a question. If God were to justify the ungodly, but not do the work of the gospel, yes, he would be a savior of sorts, but he would also be unjust. If God showed mercy, but lied about judgment, he said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. If God would forbear with sin forever, he would be turning back upon the revelation of the reality of his wrath. Where is the righteous judgment of the holy God? I would encourage you to write this in the margin of your Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, to, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is a great exchange in the justice of God such that he is just who is also the justifier. The wrath of God was satisfied. The righteousness of God was revealed. That is, the righteousness was granted. The theological word is imputed to the sinner so that we are justified and saved by the impending wrath of God upon ungodliness. What is revealed? What has God revealed? What has he manifest? God has shown that he's righteous when he declares sinners righteous. How did he do it? By the righteousness of the sinner? No. He's done it by the righteousness of the son who has taken the sinner's place. The righteousness of God is revealed in that he is vindicated. The righteousness of God is revealed in that it is credited to the account 
of the redeemed. The faithful have long known their sin. Throughout the whole testimony of the scriptures, the faithful have known. King David is such an example, particularly in the Psalms, of one who knows what Romans clearly teaches, that there are none who is righteous. And for this reason, he so often cries out for the steadfast love and mercy of his God. His hope is that by some means, by some way, the righteous and holy one would show mercy to him. The faithful have long known that they are each personally deserving of righteous judgment of the Lord, and the faithful have long heard of the news of forgiveness, news of blessing, news of salvation, but it hadn't been revealed. They heard news of mercy. They experienced mercy morning after morning. But how is this mercy just? The faithful were even given Passover. And then they were given the entire sacrificial system to remind them of two essential realities. That God's wrath is righteous and his judgment calls for blood. And in the sacrifices, the faithful have long been reminded of their need for a covering for the wrath of God to be diverted to another. But the faithful have also known that no lamb is a sufficient substitute for a sinner. How is it that God can save when only a lamb has been slain? Where's God's righteous judgment by which salvation can come to a man? It's been proclaimed. It's been pointed to by the the law and the prophets, Romans says. But how can it be that a man can receive mercy from a holy God? And Romans and the gospel tells us in Christ. In Christ and his gospel, the death of the righteous son of God in the place of sinners in his gospel, the power of God for salvation, finally the righteousness of God is revealed and held up on a tree. And we see it. That's my righteousness. I have no self-righteousness and I have no self-reliance upon which to mitigate against the wrath of God, but that's my righteousness on that cross for me. None have seen or known until we saw the Christ. It's in this gospel that once and for all was revealed and manifest how God has justified all those who trust in his mercy, his steadfast love and mercy. It's because of the righteousness of the one and only sacrificial, sacrificial righteous one that, that has been imputed, credited, and placed to the account of the person of faith from first to last and through and through. Romans 1.17. For in it, for in this gospel, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith from beginning to end, you could say. From faith's first confession until faith's hope is finally revealed. In every way, salvation has always been and will always be by faith. Not by self-righteousness, not by self-reliance, but by some means God would make his mercy known. Lord, make your mercy known. From the beginning of my salvation until the final redemption on the day of judgment and entrance into the kingdom of heaven, it's all of faith. From of old in Jerusalem, 
Even on the day the Chaldeans came, they did come. And when they came crashing down on the city all the way through that day, only those who cried out for mercy were saved. From faith unto faith, from beginning to end, all of our hope of salvation rests on a trust and a cry, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You want to know what the prayer of faith is? It's not complicated. Lord, have mercy. And you know what we have? We know how. We have manifest the how of mercy. Oh, have mercy on me, a sinner, in Christ, my Redeemer. So we have Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I don't just have a cry for mercy. I have, it's God who justifies. I know how he did it. I know when he did it. I know where he went. I know the tomb he went to. And I know that he rose and I know he's alive. I know the how. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has given the gift of faith and the grace upon which it clings from first to last? It's God who justifies those whom he's called. So surely God will keep the people of faith until the very end when faith's fullness is revealed from faith at the beginning until faith's final hope. Romans 8, again, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, what of those did he not face for us? What of those has he not filled up? The Chaldeans already came down the hill and they crashed in at what ought to have been me. What remains of the wrath of God? Oh, it's filled up. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do I know? Well, because he's real merciful and loving and stuff. Oh, I have something better than a simple declaration. I have the fulfillment of that mercy. I know what that mercy looks like. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, present, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, the saints have known that for all of history. They've known the love of God and that surely he's, he's righteous in his mercy. But it wasn't until the gospel that we knew that it was in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're loved by God instead of being objects of wrath because of the obedience of Christ. This is why he's called the Beloved. Son, and our beloved Lord, his perfect obedience even to the cross. What is mine, sin is his. And what is his, righteousness, is mine. From faith for faith. It's a unique phrase that has few parallels in Greek literature. Only one parallel that I'm aware of in the Bible uh, of preaching the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul there says this, the fragrance of the one, a fragrance from death to death. Kind of sounds like from faith for faith. It's actually the same Greek words. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things, he says. 
from the current condition of death or unbelief unto the fullness of the final eternal death is realized. From, from the little seed of death that Adam and Eve knew when they first sinned unto final judgment of death. From the current condition of life, belief, an initial spark of faith until final eternal life is fully realized. From faith for faith or from faith to faith, it's the current condition of a person who trusts in the mercy of our God like you who believe. Until final faith, when faith becomes sight. You see, the revelation of the righteousness of God is that faith that you believe in now and you cry, Lord, have mercy. And that faith that you will cry when you see him face to face. From beginning to end, all the way through until faith sees its object, its hope, its salvation in the Christ. Our faith does not save us from the righteous wrath of God. Our faith believes that God in Christ has done everything to save us from the judgment coming down on all sides, rightly so. So Romans 1.17 tells us that for the one that has faith, the ongoing preaching of the gospel is the means by which the righteousness of God is revealed and faith is nurtured and kept until faith once for all takes hold unto eternal life. Ongoing belief is our concern. Uh, Faith's hope from faith For faith is that God has declared him who knew no sin has become sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, I need to hear that every moment of every day. I have self-righteousness just waiting in the wings. I have self-reliance ongoingly pursuing in my soul. And I need to hear the preaching of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. In Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed, and it becomes by faith the very means by which we live and by which we are saved. The righteousness of God becomes our salvation. Friends, this is against cheap grace. Romans 1.17 does not say that the gospel is his mercy is revealed. We've long had news of his mercy, but it's in Christ that we see how it's righteous, how it's sure, how it worked. His mercy is revealed since Adam and Eve, but it's in Christ that we see his mercy revealed alongside his justice. And we say, this God is good. This God is my hope. And mercy stands on a solid foundation. It's sure and faith is increased. Friends, this morning, the application is so clear. Look at the gospel. There are two applications for us. You, sinner, believe. Believe. The the mercy of God has been revealed, his steadfast love and mercy, and the righteousness of God is revealed upon your sin, aimed at you. Believe that Christ has taken your place. Believe and believe live. The righteous will live by faith. Stop with your self-righteousness. There are those in this room right now who are here to demonstrate to God, I'm a church folk. I at least go to church every once in a while. 
and you're building this little self-reliant building against the impending wrath of the holy God. It doesn't stand up. It doesn't work. The statement is simple. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is your one hope. This is my one hope. There's not one person in this room who doesn't have that one hope, which is why the second application point is so important. And man, do we forget this one. I think that we, are, we do okay at preaching the first thing. If you have not cried out to Christ for mercy, you need to. But you've heard that before. I pray that today you hear and believe. But this second thing, you person of faith, you need to be evangelized. You need to hear and believe the gospel, O person of faith. You need to have self-righteousness put down so that you might trust in glorious mercy. You have to be eager to preach the gospel, yes, but are you eager to hear the gospel? For in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed so that your faith would be kept by the evangelization of your soul. Day after day and week after week by this glorious righteousness revealed. And one of these days, that faith that is created by this gospel in you will become sight. And you'll see them. You see that? That's the just and the justifier of my soul. Heavenly Father, I long that everyone here, my soul and every soul, would hear and believe. There would not be one person here who holds off in self-righteousness or self-reliance or just willful ignorance. But everyone would cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bring new faith, gift new faith today. And Lord, keep us from faith, that newest, that smallest spark, that seed of faith would grow to full flower in a confidence in this Christ and his gospel revealed, revealing the righteousness of God and your mercy, your grace and kindness that we would believe unto sight. Lord, keep us in your gospel. Cause us to long, to be eager to make this gospel known and to believe ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would fill up our worship in the next moments that we would make this gospel known to you. We'd speak it back to you and say, Lord God, this, you are just. You are the justifier. You are the merciful one and the lover of my soul. You're good. Create worship in your people, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.